There aren't places in America you can go and understand the history of slavery. There are no places you can go and have an honest experience with the history of lynching. Uh, we don't require people to confront the legacy of segregation. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Brian Stevenson is an attorney who leads the Equal Justice Initiative. He has dedicated his career to helping the poor, incarcerated, and condemned. In today's episode, he talks about how history has shaped contemporary racial biases and why America needs to get comfortable with shame so past mistakes aren't repeated. Aspen Ideas To Go is a weekly podcast that features compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other events presented by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Stevenson says America needs a more honest accounting of its history. As an attorney, Stevenson has helped exonerate innocent death row prisoners and eliminate excessive and unfair sentencing. He's fought for the mentally ill who are abused while incarcerated. Now he's setting his sights on illuminating history. He says it's a response to his legal work. For me, the history work is now the priority. We have to change the narrative that has created the kind of smog that I think we're all, I don't think we're free in this country. I think we all breathe a kind of smog, a pollution created by a genocide that we refuse to call a genocide. With his organization, the Equal Justice Initiative, he's working to identify and mark areas where the slave trade was active in the U.S. and where slaves were lynched. Planning for a museum called From Enslavement to Mass Incarceration is in the works. It will be built in Montgomery, Alabama, on a site that's a former slave warehouse. In this conversation from the Aspen Ideas Festival, Stevenson talks with Harvard President Drew Gilpin Faust about the power of history and the potentially horrifying consequences of not confronting it. Here's Faust. I'm going to start it off with a question to Brian that I think will get us underway. And Brian, you were just described as the advocate for justice, which you certainly are. You had an important Supreme Court case decided this week. And at the Equal Justice Initiative, you combat the injustices of capital punishment, of injustices for children. You teach at NYU. And yet you have this whole other dimension of your engagement and of the work of the Equal Justice Initiative, which is about history. It's about finding and memorializing all the lynching sites in the South. It's about a museum that you're about to open called, I believe, From Enslavement to Incarceration. Why history? Why is history so much a part of your mission as a avatar of justice? Yeah. Well, in many ways, it's a reaction to the work I've been doing for the last 31 years. I mean, I grew up in a segregated rural community uh, where lawyers came into, I started my education in a colored school, and lawyers came into our community and made them open up the public school so I could go to high school. There were no high schools for black children when my dad was a teenager. And so I grew up with this idea that the rule of law was the way forward for creating justice, because there was never a time in many parts of this country where you could have a vote and actually get the majority of people to vote to end segregation. It was the rule of law. It was the Supreme Court's decision in Brown versus Board of Education. It was those decisions in Boynton versus Alabama. We ended the bans on interracial marriage through litigation. And it was basically invoking the rule of law on behalf of a disfavored minority that created the opportunities that many of us 
had to go to college and to go to law school. And so when I got my law degree, I said, I'm going to continue that. And um, after some really tough losses, it became increasingly clear to me that there's a limit to the rule of law. If the decision makers are shaped by narratives that are creation of our distorted history. Uh, in 1987, the United States Supreme Court in a case called McCleskey versus Kent was one of the first big cases I worked on. We were challenging racial bias in the death penalty. And McCleskey was sort of the third case in this trilogy of cases about race. In 1972, the court struck down the death penalty in Furman because they said it was uh, arbitrary, like being struck by lightning. Uh, and Gregg versus Georgia, the court said, we're not going to presume that the modern death penalty operates in a racially discriminatory manner without proof. So McCleskey was this amazing effort to present the court the proof. And David Baldus gave uh, uh, the study. It was the most comprehensive study of the 20th century on the criminal justice system. Powerful data. You're 11 times more likely to get the death penalty if the victim is white uh, than if the victim is black. You're 22 times more likely to get the death penalty if the defendant is black and the victim is white in the state of Georgia. No matter what combination of variables the state of Georgia proposed, race of victim was the greatest predictor of who got the death penalty. And the lower court said, no relief. And we went to the United States Supreme Court, and the United States Supreme Court said, we accept your evidence of bias. We accept your data. But if we start correcting problems of racial bias in the death penalty, it's going to be just a matter of time before lawyers come back to us and start complaining about disparities in other kinds of criminal sentences. They'll say they're disparities based on in, in rape crimes, or rape cases, or property cases, or drug cases. And Justice Brennan wrote this amazing dissent where he ridiculed the court's analysis as, quote, a fear of too much justice. And it was the second thing, though, that the court said that absolutely broke my heart. The second thing the court said was a certain amount of bias, a certain quantum of racial discrimination in the administration of the death penalty is, in the court's opinion, inevitable. And I was turned around by that. I've argued cases at the United States Supreme Court. I read where it says equal justice under the law. I am a product of Brown versus Board of Education. In 1954, if the court had said that racial segregation in schools is inevitable, I wouldn't likely be sitting here. And I thought, they must have made a mistake. We'll fix that. And we've been fighting, and we've been fighting, and we've been fighting. And I realized that there are limits on what our courts and institutions will do if we are not grounded in an historical narrative that has to change. And so for me, the history work is now the priority. We have to change the narrative that has created the kind of smog that I think we're all, I don't think we're free in this country. I think we all breathe a kind of smog, a pollution created by a genocide that we refuse to call a genocide. And I'm talking about the plight of native people in this region where you have native Americans and the native population on this continent that were slaughtered by the millions. It was a genocide, but we won't use that word. And, and we won't use that word because we don't value their victimization the way we value the victimization of Europeans. And because we haven't done that, that made us indifferent to human enslavement. And that era of slavery is something that has created a kind of pollution. And you know, you've heard me talk about this. I don't think the great evil of American slavery uh, was involuntary servitude. I think the great evil of American slavery was the narrative of racial difference that we created to sustain it. And then that led to terrorism. And then that led to segregation. And now it's led to a presumption of dangerousness and guilt. And I don't think we can get courts to protect the rights of disfavored people until we begin changing this historical narrative, creating a new relationship to our history, creating some obligations, creating some shame. 
And that can motivate us to do more justice work. And that's why for me right now, history is a priority. It is the foundation on which the rest of our justice work uh, will be built. But until we work on this foundation, we correct some of these uh, misunderstandings about our history, we're not gonna make the progress we need to make. You've talked about the need for truth and reconciliation and used the example of South Africa. Mm -hmm. Do you think that truth and reconciliation has brought about that kind of change in narrative in South Africa? What should we take from that? And yeah. What are the lessons that we might learn differently from difficulties they've faced? I mean, I don't think it's an, it's a, it's obviously, it's not an answer to all of the problems. They have huge problems in South Africa that have to do with you know, an economic infrastructure that was mm -hmm. devastated by decades of apartheid uh, by power, which still hasn't been shifted in the ways that people imagine. But I do think that when you go to South Africa, you're not allowed to spend a lot of time there without confronting the history of apartheid. Nobody gets to deny that there was a period of time when there was apartheid. You can't ignore it. Uh, there's an owning of it that makes it possible to do some things that we quite can't do here. And, and in that respect, for me, truth-telling isn't immediately about how it helps us deal with contemporary issues. That's the, that's the goal. But immediately what it does is it just creates an understanding of who we are. So for example, when I talk about um, the lynching era, for me it's really important to characterize that era as an era of racial terrorism. Because for my grandparents and many people, they were terrorized. The lynchings weren't acts directed at individuals, they were acts directed at the entire African-American community. 90% of the black population of this country lived in the American South in 1910, and over the next 50 years, they fled by the millions. But they didn't go to Detroit and Cleveland and Chicago and Los Angeles and Oakland as immigrants looking for new economic opportunities. They went to those communities as exiles and refugees from terror. And, if, and what we know in our global work, our international work, is that when you're dealing with a refugee community, there are things you have to do to deal with the trauma and the burdens and the law. And we haven't done that. We put people in ghettos, and now we have generational poverty and generational. So we have to understand this history to understand what we're dealing with. For me, the great challenge of the 50s and the 60s and the 40s uh, was segregation. And the real anguish of segregation wasn't just the laws as directions. I, you know, my parents were humiliated every day of their lives. They saw those signs that said white and colored, and they weren't directions, they were assaults. And we didn't do anything to try to help people recover. And because of that, we now have this presumption of dangerousness and guilt that follows black and brown people. And it doesn't matter whether you go to Harvard. It doesn't matter how much money you make. You can be places in this country where you will be presumed dangerous or guilty because of your skin color. And in that respect, the truth part is about trying to get us to understand the nature of the problem. Mm -hmm. And it's how we reconcile ourselves to, our, to that truth that creates the opportunities. And so in many ways, Rwanda is a better example of how truth and reconciliation has created a hopeful uh, situation. Uh, there isn't an effort to just uh, eliminate all of those minorities, all of those ethnic groups that were part of the genocide. Uh, in Germany, I think it's a, it's, you know, I don't, I don't think I would feel unsafe going to Germany. I don't have a hesitation of going to that country. Uh, but I would if after the Holocaust they never talked about it. I would if they denied it. I would if I wasn't sure that they understood the evil that the Holocaust represents. 
Now I'm actually interested in going because I want to see the markers and the stones that were placed next to the homes of Jewish families in Berlin that were taken away. I want to go to Auschwitz and reflect soberly on that history to pay some homage to the victims of that horror. I want to go to Birkenbau. And uh, I think it's important that that country has done that. In this country, we haven't done that. There aren't places in America you can go and understand the history of slavery. There are no places you can go and have an honest experience with the history of lynching. Uh, we don't require people to confront the legacy of segregation. In fact, we do the opposite. We tell them these false stories about the glorious Confederacy. Uh, and I think in some ways that contributes to the pollution. And so you can't reconcile yourself uh, to feeling good about Alabama or Mississippi or Louisiana when Confederate Memorial Day is a state holiday when Jefferson Davis's birthday is a state holiday. In Alabama, we don't even have Martin Luther King Day. It's Martin Luther King slash Robert E. Lee Day. And it's hard to reconcile yourself to this 2016 state that has this history and say that that history isn't still a problem, because it is. I'm struck in thinking about South Africa, which we spoke briefly about yeah. also before the session. When I was there, I had this overwhelming sense of urgency that people felt about making their country different, making mm -hmm. their country succeed. And I think there's something of the same urgency that surrounds the memory of the Holocaust yeah. among Germans. They're very invested in it. And through a series of measures, we seem to have, until the last year or so, when it's been forced into an urgent foregrounding again, I think we have lost that. And you've, you've often talked about the Hey, geography of the civil rights movement, you know, Rosa Parks one day, Martin Luther King the next day, it's over, everything's fixed. And, and so I think that pressure for urgency is part of what you have been working on by bringing the lynching memories forward, not letting it be invisible and, and repressed. Yeah, well, and I think in part because I'm worried about what our continued silence, our continued denial will do. Uh, the Bureau of Justice now predicts that one in three black male babies born in this country is expected to go to jail or prison, and nobody seems to really care about that. Presidential candidates are not talking about that. It's not the subject of conferences. It's not the subject of uh, political discourse and talk shows. We've actually become so accepted of this uh, victimization of people of color, this bad outcomes for people of color. We just kind of breathe it in and we carry on. And that kind of, you know, this police violence that we're seeing on the streets, I don't think we're going to overcome it until we do something to correct this narrative that we have in our heads, both the implicit bias and the explicit bias, which is shaped by this narrative of racial difference. And I do think it's urgent because, you know, I, you know, I got, I won relief for a man who spent 30 years on Alabama's death row for a crime he did not commit. And we presented the evidence of his innocence about 16 years ago, and I really do not believe that the people who had the power to let him out thought he was guilty. I think they thought that they would lose more by acknowledging that they'd made a mistake than they would gain by letting him go home. And that's because they could not value his victimization. And the reason why we have 2.3 million people in jails and prisons, the reason why we have 50 million people living beneath the federal poverty level, the reason why we tolerate this crisis environment for undocumented people, people who are unauthorized in this country, is because we don't really think about their victimization the way we think about our own. And that disconnect creates a society that's going, to, I think, is doomed to fail. It will not endure. 
when you become insensitive generation after generation to the poor and the disfavored and the marginalized, you cannot survive. History teaches us that too. And so for me, it is urgent if we're going to see progress in this nation that we begin to talk about and understand what the legacy of slavery and terrorism and segregation has done to us. And I also think it's kind of cruel. You know, I have older people of color come up to me sometimes and say, Mr. Stevenson, I get angry when I hear someone on TV talking about how we're dealing with domestic terrorism for the first time in our nation's history. They say, we grew up with terrorism. We had to worry about being bombed and lynched and menaced. And when they say the first time, it's a new kind of injury that adds to their sense of burden. And we've got to change that narrative if we want to get free. But I also think that we're not, none of us are free. It's not like it's just a problem for people. It's a problem for all of us. It doesn't take very much for us to get into conflict, for us to find distrust, to have tension. We're not free. And I actually think that um, part of the problem we have in America is we've become such a punitive society that we're afraid to own up to our mistakes because we're afraid of what kind of punishment we're going to have to face. And that's why, for me, when I talk about these issues, I'm not interested in punishing America for slavery. I'm not interested in punishing America for uh, lynching and terrorism. I don't want to punish people for segregation. But I do want liberation. I want something better. I do want to repair the damages that we have, the damage we have done by allowing these narratives to continue unchallenged for as long as they have continued. You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Brian Stevenson is the founder and director of the Equal Justice Initiative. He also wrote the book, Just Mercy. He's interviewed by Drew Gilpin Faust. She's a history professor and the president of Harvard University. Well, thinking about history as urgent, how do we make history as urgent? What are the instruments of this? You have one that you're Mm -hmm. founding this museum. Tell us a little bit about your museum. Yeah, well, I think we do have to change the, the landscape. Uh, as I mentioned, if you come to Montgomery three years ago, we have 59 markers and monuments to the Confederacy and, and hardly a word about slavery. Uh, you go through the American South and we, and we have this romanticized view. And I'll tell you, one of the things that challenges me more than anything is when people start talking about the good old days of the 40s and the 50s. And I, you know, for, that's exactly right. And it's a source. Of, and so I think we have to challenge that by insisting on a more honest accounting of our history. And one of the ways we want to do that is we want to resurrect and identify and mark the spaces in this country where the domestic slave trade was active. I don't think you should be able to travel across this country and not know where thousands of people were brought by boat or by rail or by chain uh, and, and, and auction. I don't think you should be able to go through this country and not know where the auction sites are. And we want to, we want to make that visible and accessible. And I really like public history making, marking, because uh, some people will just never go into a museum. But we put up these markers, and in downtown Montgomery now, when you come downtown, you see a marker about the Montgomery slave trade that we've erected. You see a marker about slave warehouses. You see a marker about domestic slave trade. And we're actually next door to the Hank Williams Museum. It's been there really long. It's a very popular institution in downtown Montgomery. And I see people coming out of that museum, and I see sometimes children stopping at our slavery marker and the parents will sometimes say, get, get away, get, and, the, and the child is still there. And then I see the family come over, and they'll stand there for 20 minutes, 
And I, and, I, and I really do believe it's likely the first time that family has ever talked about slavery and what it means. And I think we have to do that. But I think more than that, we have to create a consciousness about what's happened. We want to mark every lynching site in America. We've done a very poor job of talking about it. And historians, I think, can be faulted a little bit for not uh, focusing on these parts of our history that make us uncomfortable. We did a big study, a five-year study. We identified about 800 more lynchings than had been previously identified. But we want to put a marker at every lynching site. We want to build a museum that's about slavery. It's shameful to me that there are so few places in America where you can go and have an honest experience with the history of slavery. And our museum is called From Enslavement to Mass Incarceration. We're going to build it on a site which was a former slave warehouse. We want people to hear the narratives. We want people to understand the turmoil. We want to understand people that slavery involved bondage. It was a crime to be kidnapped and taken away. Uh, not the happy narratives. Uh, and uh, we think that's part of the way we do it. Uh, and then we're going to build this memorial. We want to actually build a space that actually honors and recognizes the victims of lynchings because we think until we understand that history, we can't make progress. But we don't want it to be static. Part of the way we want to build it is the memorial will have these columns uh, that present uh, the names of uh, over 4,000 lynching victims by county. But then we're going to have a twin of each of those uh, columns in a field, and we're going to ask the counties represented, over 800 counties in America where lynchings took place, we're going to ask people from those counties to organize and get active and come to Montgomery and claim their module and take it back to their county and put it in front of the courthouse or put it in front of a school or put it in a park, but put it somewhere where people in that community have to make peace with or deal with the history of lynching in their space. And for me, that's the kind of active history the kind of active uh, kind of truth-telling that I think we can help uh, push things forward. But it is urgent because I'm hearing a lot of stuff now that makes me very worried that we will replicate all the damage that we have done during these eras in the coming years by repeating these same narratives, which are always masked right, as something else, but they're rooted in a narrative of fear and anger about the other, about the Muslim, about the immigrant, about those who uh, look different. And until we understand that history more carefully, I think we're gonna be very vulnerable to narratives that pull us into places where we replicate the same abuse, we replicate the same cruelty, we replicate the same racial hierarchy uh, that has, I think, compromised us to date. You've been talking about the South and about Montgomery, where your office is, and I'm a Southern historian and spent a lot of my life focused on the South and its extreme racism and the history of slavery. But one of the things that I think has to change as well in the United States is a recognition that this is not just the Absolutely. South. And in the historical literature in the last decade or so, there's been much more emphasis on identifying how New England was so involved in the slave trade, yes. in slavery, up until the time of its abolition in, in Massachusetts in 1783, but in New York well into the 19th century. Yes. So making this a national problem, I think, is an important part of changing yeah. the narrative. This was, slavery was the engine of economic yes. growth. Yes. So as you know, Brian, we've taken a leaf from your book and we are marking sites on the Harvard campus yeah. where slavery was, uh, took place. Yeah. And we put one up this spring on what had been the president's house in the 18th century where we knew the names of four enslaved people who lived there. And that naming the names, yeah. I think, gives a powerful 
opportunity for empathy and identity, yeah. and, and as it will with the names that you're going to put up on your yeah. lynching monument. Yeah. But I think it's so important to realize, yes, to talk about how this is a national problem. It was the, you know, it was the United States Supreme Court that is primarily responsible for disenfranchising uh, black people after emancipation. Right? The Congress had passed laws that would have given African Americans the opportunity to vote, but the Supreme Court struck down those laws invoking what would become a familiar refrain, states' rights, local autonomy. It was President Johnson uh, in 1867 giving his speech talking about the inferiority of black people, how there is no race more, uh, more destined to destroy a civilization if we allow them to vote. It was the governor of New York in 1868 that campaigned as the white man's candidate uh, on behalf of the Democratic Party. And it was the North and the West that became uh, the institutional justification for allowing terrorism to flourish, right? We had the means, we had the opportunity, we had the law to intervene. We chose not to do it because we were also buying into that narrative of racial difference. And now you see evidence of this and it doesn't matter where you are in a country. It's not just in the American South. It doesn't matter where you are. That presumption of dangerousness and guilt will manifest itself. And so you're absolutely right. We are all complicit. And I think this is, it's uncomfortable for people, but I, I do think part of what we have to do, and nobody likes to do this, I do think we have to, we have to actually uh, get comfortable with shame. Mm -hmm. We do pride great in America. We do victory great. We do Olympics great when we win. You know, all that stuff, great, great, great. We got some great songs. Our songbook for success and victory is big. Our songbook for failure is almost non-existent. We don't do shame very well. We don't like to own up to our mistakes. And because of that, we don't know how to apologize. We don't know how to recognize things that are difficult. And so we deny that we've done these things. And that just adds to the shame uh, of what we are dealing with. I mean, I don't know why our parents and grandparents didn't force a conversation. I sort of know why. It's because we were dealing with some, so many vexing challenges that it wasn't safe to do it. But we've got to be, get more comfortable. We've done shameful things. Uh, the genocide of Native people was shameful. Slavery was shameful. Lynching, pulling people out of their homes and burning them alive because they bumped into someone white on the street, because they didn't use Mr. when they It's shameful. Segregation, shameful. Presuming people dangerous and guilty just because of their color, shameful. Shooting people on the streets when they've done nothing wrong just because they're black or brown, shameful. Throwing people who are religious minorities or sexual minorities into spaces where they're abused and, and, and mistreated, shameful. And we've got to find our voice in expressing that shame. And in so doing, we open up ourselves to what it takes to repair the damage. Let me ask you about that, because one of the... <laughs> one of the elements under discussion in, in exchanges about these issues is reparations, mm -hmm. repair, reparations, same word root. How do you think about that? And when you use the word repair, how do you envision that happening? I think it's something we have to do, but I, I think we tend to hear it and we think, oh, giving people money just because of some status for something that happened a long time ago. And that's not really what I'm talking about. You know, if I just very clumsily, you know, fell off the stage and hit somebody on the front row and injured them, it would really matter to me 
that they know I did not mean to hurt them. It would really matter to me uh, before I left Aspen that they're doing okay. It would really matter to me that I make sure I've done everything I can to help that person recover for the damage that I have caused them, not just for them, but for me. My peace quotient's gonna be disrupted by this. And when you understand your obligations as a decent person, as a decent society, as a civil society, you should think about repair and reparations not as a burden and an obligation, but an opportunity to make right something that was wrong. And we hadn't done that. And, and, you know, I think we just skipped past this in the 1960s. We thought, oh, if we pass the Voting Rights Act, if we pass the Civil Rights Act, that's all we have to do. And it was naive at best and reckless uh, more descriptively. And I think we should have been saying, no, we need to repair what we've done by denying black people the right to vote. Maybe we should have a law that says in the states that disenfranchised African-Americans, when you turn 18, you automatically are registered to vote. We're not going to burden you with the obligation of registration because we know we have burdened you by denying you the right to vote. We're gonna make that something we do for black people. And we might say, you know what? As a state trying to repair this history, you don't have to go to the polls on election day. We'll send somebody to your home and get your vote. And just think, and, and, you, and you, know, you could see a state that's trying to recover from decades of disenfranchisement, you could say, you should wanna do that. I get excited every now and then, and sometimes I say, you know, if we were really trying to repair the history of disenfranchisement, not only would you be automatically registered to vote if you're black, and not only would they come and get your vote on election day, but you might be able to vote more than once on election day. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> but, but, it, it, but it expresses <laughs> some desire to correct. You know, these states that deny people admission to schools, why not say, if you're the child of someone or the per uh, who was denied admission because of this horrific segregation, we're going to let you come for half price. You know, the $95 billion we spent between 1944 and 1971 as part of the GI Bill that created a white middle class, that created all of these opportunities all over the country, homes and access to loans, and, but we largely deny to black veterans the 1.2 million veterans that fought for this country during World War II. If we understand we did that, why don't we today not want to reach out to those black veterans and say, we want to do something to help get you closer to that middle class success, that generational success that others enjoyed that you were denied. And do it not with bitterness and anger, but do it with a recognition that until we make right, we're going to be an unjust place. And that's the consciousness I think we have to cultivate uh, but we do need to repair. We cannot recover from this history without some commitment to reparations. Brian Stevenson is an attorney who has devoted his career to helping the poor, incarcerated, and condemned. Now his organization, the Equal Justice Initiative, is planning to build a national memorial to victims of lynching and a museum called From Enslavement to Mass Incarceration. Both will be in Montgomery, Alabama. Drew Gilpin-Faust is his interviewer. She's president of Harvard and wrote the 2009 book, This Republic of Suffering, Death and the American Civil War. It won the Bancroft Prize. Now, back to their conversation. And Ta-Nehisi Coates's description of the way housing laws created the white suburbs right. to the further disadvantage of black people. He has talked about reparations in the context of that particular deprivation as well as the yeah. broader ones. So 
these haven't stopped. It's not just going back to slavery, as you just pointed out about the GI Bill. It's a continuation. Yeah. It is a continuation, but our narrative, and this is what scares me, is that we've already done way, way too much. Mm -hmm. And I'm tired of talking about race. I'm tired about, you know, even now you have 19-year-olds who say, yeah, I'm not that affirmative action. No, I'm not with that. But if you ask them, why did we need affirmative action in the first place? They can't give you a coherent answer. They can't. And so instead of repairing it, we actually have a fatigue now. We're tired of that. We're tired of that. How long do we have to do this? You know, my famous line, my favorite line out of the United States Supreme Court case is actually out of civil rights cases. It's a United States Supreme Court decision issued in 1883. And what the Supreme Court says is, oh my, it's essentially, they don't say, oh my God, but this is the way it reads. <laughs> they say, oh my, we are so tired of these formerly enslaved people complaining about what slavery did to them. How long are we gonna be burdened with this obligation to help the, the, free, the uh, new freedmen? And there is this exhaustion with accommodating the needs of uh, newly enfranchised. And that's the narrative that started developing in 1883. And, we've, and so when you read Shelby County versus uh, Alabama, the 2013 case that struck down parts of the Voting Rights Act, which you hear is a narrative, oh my God, we've done so much. How long do we have to be burdened with this repair thing? And it's rooted in this false narrative. You know, there was never a time when these states actually supported voting rights for black people. I would love to hear your comments on the Fisher case decided mm -hmm. or announced last week. And it seemed to turn a different direction that we had had cases about affirmative action in higher education that kind of used the language mm -hmm. you're describing. Aren't we done with this yet? How much longer? And this case seemed to be a different one in tone. And indeed, Alito's dissent began with, what's going on here? Something mm -hmm. like that. What's changed yeah. since yeah. we last looked at this? Well, I'm encouraged by it for a number of reasons. I think, obviously, one, it's the right outcome. I think educational environments that are non-diverse um, make those not good environments for anybody. And I think, you know, the, the, as you may recall, that case when it was argued uh, features some really shocking questions. That, you know, that Justice Scalia said, well, maybe black people shouldn't be going to these colleges. Maybe they're just not ready for these kind of colleges and universities. And the data about achievement and success in some of these spaces was completely irrelevant. So I think it was a good development, but I think it's a credit uh, to activists. I think it's a credit to people who are insisting that we talk more about race. It's a credit to all of us who have the courage to own up uh, to the legacy of slavery at Harvard, to own up to the legacy of slavery at some of these institutions, to talk more honestly about these realities that have shaped where we are. And I don't think it would take much, if you read the actual historical record, I don't think it takes much to say, oh, wait a minute, I didn't understand that. We seem to go, most people, their knowledge of what happened in this country with regard to race between the end of the Civil War and the uh, civil rights activism of the 1950s is completely non-existent. They can't tell you hardly anything. And because of that, we have been vulnerable to these fatigue narratives, to these entitlement narratives, these quota narratives that have blocked and created resentment uh, to integration and diversity opportunities. And that's one of the reasons why I am encouraged by what activism and education and truth-telling and history-making and history work can do. And if we've seen some beginning of something at the United States Supreme Court, uh, then we have a lot to be excited about. Because ultimately, I'm going to have to go back to court and invoke that rule of law on the people who are still going to be disfavored. Even after we deal with some of this stuff, we're always going to have people in this country who are disfavored, who are despised. And without a commitment to the rule of law, we're not going to get where we're trying to go. And so I'm hopeful. 
by what I saw in Fisher. We just have to sustain it. If the activism stops, uh, the kind of thinking and, evi and uh, argument and reasoning you see in Fisher is going to stop too. I think the activism is responsible for the abandonment of the preposterous notion six years ago, seven years ago, that we were a colorblind society. That, that had gained traction, and now I don't think anyone would dare to assert that. And that's the beginning of the learning that I think yeah. you want to happen from, yeah. from your yeah. museum. And yeah, I, I hope so, because that was one of the most vexing things for me. It's, I mean, we were, I was incredibly proud that, that African-American had been elected president, but I wasn't at all confused. We didn't elect Barack Obama because he was black. We elected him despite the fact that he was black, and that's mostly because we are self-interested. Uh, if we think, you know, there's somebody over here who's going to help us, and these other people can't help us, and that happens, I tell this all the time in this story about this family, very racist, didn't want to have anything to do with black people, but they had a black doctor down the street that was willing to treat their sick child, and they had a high school kid with an interest in biology who said, maybe I can do something. They're going to go to the black doctor. We're self-interested. My state of Alabama is a perfect example of that. Uh, in Alabama, college football is like religion. It's not sports. Uh, it is a source of pride unlike anything else, and they want to win, Alabama or Auburn. And if they have to put on a team, an all-black team to win, that's what they're going to do. And in fact, that's what they have done. <laughs> Notwithstanding the fact that our state constitution still prohibits black and white people from going to school together. In our state constitution, we have language that prohibits black and white people from going to school together. And the only way you can get rid of that language is by a statewide referendum. And so the business community in 2004, because they were getting beat up when they were trying to get the next Kia plant, would be Alabama versus Michigan. And the people in Michigan were saying, well, you better read that state constitution. In fact, they were copying it and sending it to the Kia executives. And the business community said, we're losing business. Let's get that out. Let's put it on the ballot. And in 2004, the majority of people in Alabama voted to keep that language in the state constitution. Uh, Cam Newton became the black quarterback at Auburn to take the nation to a take Auburn to a national championship the next year in 2012. Uh, they had the referendum again, and an even bigger majority voted to keep the language in the state constitution. And so we should not be confused about black exceptionalism. About you know, we're, you know, great black people have been doing great things for a really long time, but it hasn't ended racial bias, right? Dr. George Washington Carver did all these things that made it a whole lot better for everybody. Jack Johnson was a great fighter, it didn't end segregation. When Jackie Robinson became a great baseball player, it didn't end the narrative of racial difference. And so we have to understand that the, the path to, to racial justice, the path to fairness and equality is not gonna be cheap. You can't win it with an election. You can't elevate one person. You can't hire one black executive and think that you've achieved something. It's gonna to have to be changing this narrative. It means truth telling in all facets of our lives and getting us closer to owning up to this history. Are you optimistic about this? I am definitely optimistic. I am. And I actually will say more than that. I think you have to be, have to be hopeful. Uh, my grandmother was the daughter of people who were enslaved. And her, her father was in her ear all the time about slavery. And she was in my ear all the time. I have basically all these narratives about slavery in my head that my grandmother gave me. And she fled lynching in Bowling Green, Virginia uh, at the turn of the century. Uh, and she raised her children, uh, and she insisted that they stay hopeful. And my grandmother would do these things for me, and she said, you can do anything, but you've got to get close to the things that matter. You've got to keep fighting, fight, fight, fight. But she said, don't ever lose your hope. Uh, and I think that's right, because if we're unwilling to believe things that we haven't seen, then we're doomed. 
you know, the civil rights movement was courageous. People were tactical and strategic. Dr. King, Ms. Parks, brilliant uh, activists, thoughtful, strategic, talented. But more than anything, they were hopeful. They actually believed that if they stood up and gave their bodies and their lives to something more enduring, more powerful, more transcendent than what we'd seen in this country, people would respond, and they were right. And so I absolutely have to be hopeful, and I am hopeful, uh, because I really do believe that without hope, you can't make change. And, and what I say to some people, including young people, who sometimes don't be hopeless activists, because that's not going to get you where you're trying to go. You've got to be hopeful. Hope is what gets you to stand up when other people say, sit down. Hope is what gets you to speak when other people say, be quiet. And so, yes, I'm very hopeful about what we can do, even though I'm hearing things that are terrifying. I'm seeing things that worry me. I'm still very hopeful. And uh, you know, I was a, when I was a young kid, I grew up in a black church. I was a church musician, and I'd play for the testimonial services. And people would give these testimonies that were sometimes heartbreaking. And they would talk about all the difficulties they were facing and not having enough food and all these challenges. But the tradition was at the end of every testimony you would sing, you'd start singing this song, and you'd say, wouldn't take nothing for my journey now. And I'm actually very excited about what we can do in this country if we are willing to be hopeful, if we're willing to acknowledge our shameful past, if we're willing to tell the truth, if we're willing to engage in reparational work, if we're willing to be honest about the fact that we're not free, if we're willing to confront the smog that has corrupted our environment and change our behaviors, if we're willing to embrace a narrative about who we can be that's not rooted in fear and anger, if we're willing to be courageous and do some uncomfortable things, and uh, yeah, I'm extremely hopeful and excited about where we are or what we can do. It seems to me that that message of hope is a good one to transition on to you and to give all of you a chance to ask questions, comment. Last year, I read a book called The Short and Tragic Life of Robert Peace about a brilliant young man who is very fortunate in some ways, goes to Yale University. But the trauma that he has experienced in his life prior to that prevents him from success. So for me, that was an incredible lesson about affirmative action is not enough. How do we address that part of the problem? Yeah. Well, I do think uh, it's a terrific book. Uh, I do think that um, if we take seriously, more seriously, the victimization of everybody, and we learn some things. So for example, there are 200 zip codes in this country where about 80% of the children are going to end up in jail or prison. We have kids in this country who are born in violent families. They live in violent neighborhoods. They go to violent schools. By the time they're five, they show up at school with, with trauma disorders. And what you do when you're trying to treat somebody with a trauma disorder is that you actually try to make them safe at all costs. You can't do education until you make them safe. You, give, you create a relationship with them. But instead, what we're doing in our schools is we're actually just threatening them some more. We put in metal detectors and police officers, and we say, you mess up, we'll suspend you. If you mess up big time, we'll expel you. And now we have this pipeline, which is a schoolhouse to jailhouse pipeline, and we are reinforcing that trauma. And so the way I think we have to deal with that is to actually acknowledge that we have a crisis, a healthcare crisis of trauma in poor and urban communities across this country, and make an investment in dealing with that trauma. And if we can spend $80 billion a year, which is what we spent on jails and prisons last year, Surely we can spend a fraction of that and deal with the trauma disorders. And then uh, people like Robert Peace have a better chance uh, to manage and recover from all of that history. And I think it means changing what matters to us. I, you know, I'm talking to the Department of Education later. I, I, I think it's a problem 
when we evaluate school performance based on school test scores without paying any attention to the suspension and expulsion rates in those schools. Because you're not a good school if you suspend and expel a lot of students. You're failing a lot of kids. And no matter what your test scores are, if we made suspension and expulsion one of the critical metrics in how we judge schools, everything would change. We'd have to start thinking about these trauma interventions. We'd have to start thinking about how we help kids recover from some of these challenges. And I do think that there are things that we have to do. I think the CDC should declare a state of emergency in those 200 zip codes where we know that 80% of the children are going to end up in jails or prisons and infuse those communities with health and resources and educational opportunities uh, uh, because we have tolerated that kind of victimization. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. If you like today's show, check out the episode Rebuilding Trust Between Police and Communities of Color. High-profile episodes of violence have highlighted excessive force and mistreatment of people of color by police. Featured speakers include former U.S. Attorney General Loretta Lynch, Black Lives Matter activist DeRay McKesson, and Sherilyn Eiffel of the NAACP. They talk about the way forward for law enforcement. Find it by searching Aspen Ideas to Go on iTunes. Now, back to today's episode. Here's a member of the audience with a question. I'd like to address the question of racial history on campus. I happen to have graduated from Princeton University, and there Woodrow Wilson was uh, well-regarded, including at the School of Public and International Affairs, which I attended. How do we honor his legacy and at the same time recognize the terrible segregation policies that he pursued while president of the United States? Well, I think we first have to um, tell a truthful story about who he was and what he did. And if we tell that truthful story, there will be things that are honorable that we can recognize were honorable, and there are gonna be things that are dishonorable that we have to recognize are dishonorable, right? What we can't do is to not talk about uh, his attitudes on integration, uh, his embrace of birth of a nation, his thinking around this whole question of uh, racial hierarchy. We just can't do that. Uh, and no one uh, who uh, we embrace uh, is without flaws, right? You know, there are people who have all kinds of issues, but we tell the truth. And when we tell the truth, then we can find something that allows us to have the right relationship with that person. You know, um, I have a lot of concerns, and we have a bigger issue. Well, it's not a bigger, it's a, a more extensive issue in the South because we name everything after the architects and defenders of slavery. And I have a real problem with that. And one of the ways that we do it is we actually give people a way to think about how to honor, how to name that's healthier. So we have a project at, at EJI. We've actually spent a lot of time trying to identify Southern white abolitionists who were trying to end slavery in the American South in the 1850s. And guess what? We found some. Uh, we've been trying to identify people <laughs> who were activists in trying to stop lynching, who were white in the early part of the 20th century. And they exist. And there were people who were actually trying to end segregation in the 1950s. 
And what I'm saying to people in the spaces where I live is, I, you know, I'm not asking you to have no pride. If, if we have our way, there will be no Southern heritage. We'll have no Southern pride. Let's just have pride in things about which we should be proud, right? Let's name the buildings after these people who are trying to end slavery rather than sustain it. Let's name some streets after the people who are trying to stop. Because you know what? They were honorable people. They did something that we can now recognize as honorable. And I just think we have to think more critically about this. None of us would support uh, anybody say, oh, let's make Adolf Hitler's birthday a national holiday. That would be unconscionable. If a Mideast state said, oh, we're going to celebrate Osama bin Laden's birthday, there's no telling what we would do. And so we have to be thoughtful about what that feels like when you're the object of these things. We don't have perfect politicians. If you're going to name something after a politician, you're going to have to deal with some measure of dishonorable behavior. I'm trying to qualify that more, but I can't come up with any more words. <laughs> uh, uh, but it doesn't mean that uh, we can't talk about and acknowledge those things about which we have to talk about if we're concerned about racial equality. Can I just add something here, which is I think it's very important to understand the complexity of human lives mm -hmm. as we look yes. at the past, because that enables us to understand that in the present, we are probably making complex yes. choices that our grandchildren may look at and say, why did he, she... Yes. That. Yes. And so to appreciate the complexity instead of having a history that reduces people to yes. simple um, caricatures of what a human life is yeah. like. Yeah. I think that's such an important commitment and obligation of the yeah. historian and the historical record. I, I, I think that's right. I mean, I, and we do the work we do as an institution that has spent most of our time defending people who've been accused of very bad mm -hmm. things. Mm -hmm. I represent people who have committed terrible crimes. And what I say to people is that, you know, you're more than the worst thing you've ever done. And I really do believe that. You know, Alabama is a slave state, but it's not just a slave state, right? Uh, Woodrow Wilson did some really racist things. It's not the only thing he did. And so that complexity is important uh, because when we actually deal with the complexity of human nature and human behavior, we begin to understand why shame isn't something you run from at all costs. Mm -hmm. Right? Because we often want forgiveness and mercy. We just don't want to give it to anybody else. And that's got to be something that we talk more honestly about. And I think we also then can understand the ways in which human choices are structured yes. by social institutions. Absolutely. And that they're not independent of those institutions. Right. So how are our institutions structuring choices for children and adults today in ways that might yield undesired consequences? That's right. Well, that's why these schools got pulled into that same narrative of fear and anger. Mm -hmm. They're being told, test score, test score, test score. And they've become places where they're like mini jails. I've been to schools where the principals sound like wardens and the teachers sound like correctional officers. And these terrified, traumatized children are just waiting for the bad thing to happen to them. And I tell you, when you're living in terror and trauma your whole life, and at seven or eight, and somebody gives you a drug that makes you feel just different for three hours where you're not feeling terror and trouble, you're going to want more of that drug. When you get to a certain age and somebody says, join my gang, and we'll at least give you some protection from all this threat, you're going to join that gang. And rather than seeing that as evidence of bad character, somebody who we should just throw away forever, we ought to see it as evidence of our failure to deal with this trauma. And that's where that social institution force becomes really important to the analysis. When I was teaching school in Texas, textbook said that the Civil War was about states' rights. Mm -hmm. And it was very hard to convince my children in the fifth grade it was not about states' rights. But the textbooks, that's a place as a suggestion of how you go early on. And maybe you can change the mindset of children much earlier. 
even if they go home and their parents tell them something different. They're reading it and they're seeing it. And I don't know if that's a question of how do you get to the textbooks? Yeah, well, I mean, actually in, in Alabama, we have a lot of textbooks that don't even say it's the, you know, about states' rights. They call the Civil War the War of Northern Aggression. And, um, but, but what you're seeing is rather than confront that, you see uh, people taking control of educational boards and their number one priority is to shield textbooks from anything that's going to threaten or undermine uh, this narrative that people have gotten comfortable with. And that's why I think the collective societal history uh, shifting is so important. Uh, because if you come outside of that classroom and everybody else knows stuff that you don't know about this history, and you begin to think that you're actually disadvantaged by not understanding what really happened, if you understand that you're going to be burdened by not understanding what really happened, then I think it changes things. That self-interest might kick in even before that race consciousness kicks in. And we begin to see good education, quality education, informed education, critical education, the way we see those black players on the football field, right? Something that we have to have if we want to win. And I think we have to create that culture as we start talking about it. But I absolutely agree, and it's why I think we're so committed now to this history work. We're about to put our next report, is going to, we're going to put out a report about black veterans and the plight of veterans and how they were targeted for lynching. And then our next report is on segregation. And our report is going to document all the people, the governors, the political leaders, all the people that kept saying segregation forever. Because what does it mean to live in a country where you had all of these people, the elected leaders of most of these states, in the 1970s, still saying segregation forever. And then they come up with an idea, oh, maybe we can create ID laws when people register to vote. Maybe we can create these new kinds of ways of creating political districts. And the courts say, oh, that's race neutral. You haven't heard about the speeches that were being given about segregation forever. So I think that is the challenge, is how we make that cultural shift so evident, so pervasive, that it becomes a, a sign of a potential uh, indicator of failure when we, we cling to these uh, educational trans manuscripts that are, that are really about self-protection and not self-progress. Prog uh, Brian, this suggests that you really are prioritizing non-school-based history interventions. Is that accurate, and is that an explicit strategy? We, we, Museums and markers in yeah. public history? I, I think that, no, we would support any kind of effort that can be done. I'm worried about all the places that have become islands when it comes to educational curriculum and how we get past it. You know, we have this growing number of people who are in private sector, uh, private education. Uh, local control has been very resistant to these. We have increasing segregation, racial segregation uh, in these schools. So we, do, we develop a lot of materials. I didn't bring any here, but we have a calendar. Uh, and we produce hundreds of thousands of copies. We send it everywhere. But it's a different kind of calendar because what we talk about is this history. Of, of, of the challenges of, of, of enslavement and lynching and terror. We don't have you know, Barack Obama's birthday in the calendar. That's not what they're trying to achieve. And we want those materials. We have a video. You can go to our website at eji.org. We have a lot of materials that are really appropriate for school-aged children that are trying to kind of change that narrative. So I think we have to supplement. But it does bother me that we're not getting more of that kind of stuff created mm -hmm. from the academy. You know, from the historians who know the history aren't talking about that stuff, right? So we feel like we have to supplement uh, and we have to create these outside of school um, access. I think the great thing about social media is that there are portals now. 
uh, that can help people learn and understand things that they, they wouldn't otherwise learn and understand. And we've got to make sure that those pools are filled with the kind of truth telling mm -hmm. that we're talking about. Um, you alluded to President Obama, and um, there's a quote from James Baldwin that stands out to me that says, to be Negro and relatively conscious in this country is to be in a, a constant state of rage. Yeah. In, the, in the time here of President Obama, do you think his election, one, do you think he showed enough rage? And two, do you think that he's done more to help or hurt this nation's understanding of healing? Mm. It's, a, it's a really important uh, and, and complex question. Um, I, I think that to get elected president of the United States, uh, if you're African-American, what you have to do to get elected is you have to minimize your blackness because there's such a presumption that you're gonna be an angry black person. You have to do all of these things to show everybody that you're not that. And that's the only way you can get elected. And because you're doing that, you are creating this dissonance and you are creating this consciousness that there's no reason to be this angry black. And I think that's a problem. Now, it is also true that when you have a person of color doing great things and showing skill and talent, you are also advancing these things. Uh, and so for some folks, I think uh, they want to focus on the absence of that. Others want to say, oh, no, this is great. We've done it. But I don't think there should be any confusion about this. That in a, I mean, this is why people say, well, why don't you run for office? I don't want to do that, right? I, don't, I, I mean, this is what I started with. I, I can't think of a strategy that black people could have endorsed in 1955 to persuade a, a mostly white jurisdiction that they should end segregation. You, there's no strategy that's going to, you have to show something. So in that respect, I don't think it's a setback, but I do think it is a reality check. And what's interesting to me, I was more worried, <laughs> this is one of those perverse things, I was more worried in 2008 when all I had was hearing about the uh, He has become uh, uh, more, he's leaving office more like a black president than he came into office, yeah. right? And I say that because he's had to experience things that are more consistent with that experience, right? This irrational hostility, this irrational reaction, there's nothing you can say can work, blah, 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 blah. And, uh, you know, and I'm, I've supported the president, but, I, you know, the president was disadvantaged in some ways. Uh, you know, his history is not the history of a lot of African-Americans. Uh, you know, um, my parents were struggling with segregation. My grandparents were uh, dealing with terrorism. My great-grandparents were enslaved. He didn't have that history. There wasn't somebody in his ear talking about the hardships uh, of segregation. There wasn't somebody in his ear talking. He had to learn that this other kind of way. And I think that that does change your disposition. Uh, but you know, it's like when African immigrants come to this country uh, or people who are not uh, you know, multi-generational in this country, they quickly begin learning things uh, that they didn't actually understand until they got here. Uh, it was new for them. And I think we've seen some of that with the administration. I do think that uh, to the extent we have a lot of people think that we don't have to deal with this anymore, that's a setback. That's a setback. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's not like uh, I, I wish he hadn't been elected. Uh, what's weird to me is that, you know, if he was running now, a lot of people would vote for him again. Uh, and that speaks to something. Uh, but I do think it's hard. And I, that's the challenge I have. That's my, that's my critique, frankly, of the electoral process. It's majoritarian. Uh, and if you're a challenged minority, you've got to have other mechanisms for protecting your rights. And that's why I became a lawyer. I want to insist on the rule of law, even when people are not happy with me. 
I want to do things where people are going to get mad because I'm saying, no, you have to do this. But if we're committed to the rule of law, you get to do it anyway. Uh, I think there are obviously things that could have been done differently. You know, we've gotten to criminal justice, but very late. Uh, and, but, uh, but I think it's something we're going to have to fight through. I don't think it's, we certainly are not in a better position in 2016 than we were in 28 when it comes to racial justice in this country. Good afternoon. I'm wondering if you know Lonnie Bunch, okay, and have you uh, spoken with him, especially on the exhibits that are going to be in the African American Museum that's opening in Washington, D.C. on the Mall in September, and whether or not they portray what you spoke about today? That's an even more complicated question than people realize. <laughs> uh, but um, I, I, I really have a lot of respect for Lonnie. I'm very excited about the new museum. I think it's going to really be an important cultural institution for America. I think it's going to do a lot, help this country. Uh, and, and I think it's a, it's, I'm really thrilled about it. Um, it's, it's something different than what we want to do, right? Because I think, um, you know, we're going to talk about uh, black entertainment in that museum. We're going to talk about black achievement, which we should talk about. There should be a place where you can go and learn and understand it. But a lot of times, just like this last question, we use the success of black entertainers and we use the achievement of black people to distract us from the struggle for racial equality that everybody else is going through. And if we're not careful, we'll point to too many achievement stories and too many success stories at the peril of all the rest of this community that still is burdened with that presumption of dangerousness and guilt. You know, I was at a program yesterday with Skip Gates, who was one of my favorite, you know, and, and he can tell you something about that because, you know, when he came back and was pulled out from his apartment uh, because he was being presumed dangerous and guilt, it created a new consciousness, not a new, I'm, I'm not saying what his consciousness was before, but it underscored this problem that we face. So I'm very enthusiastic about the, the, the museum. I don't know a lot about it, uh, but I'm enthusiastic about it. I think it is important that we have that place, but I don't think it's nowhere, anywhere near enough. We need some other spaces to talk about these other things that cannot be achieved. You know, this memorial we're building in, in Montgomery for, for Lynchingville, and people said, why don't you put that in Washington? I said, well, because I want people to come to Montgomery and experience this community and this region and this area where this legacy lives. I mean, it's fascinating to me that, um, you know, in Germany, you have to go to Auschwitz uh, to see that experience. You have to go to Birkenbau. And it's that trip and that journey and the rail tracks and that proximity that starts to do something to you. And all of a sudden, you have this relationship to that horror that shakes you. I've been to the Holocaust museums. They're powerful. And I, we need those kinds of institutions to create that same relationship to what has been done in this country through our tolerance of slavery and lynching and segregation. And we are too celebratory when it comes to civil rights. I'm going to get in trouble now, just before we go, too. Uh, but I think we are too celebratory. Uh, you know, I hear people talking about the civil rights movement, and it does sound like a three-day carnival. Day one, Rosa Parks didn't give up her seat on a bus. Day two, Dr. King led a march on Washington. On day three, we changed all the laws and racism was over. And it doesn't diminish anything that they've done, but it was deeper and harder than that. And if we allow that narrative to prevail, we're not going to do the hard work we need to do to actually get to racial justice. So I'm excited about the museum, but we've got a lot more work to do after that museum opens. Brian Stevenson directs the Equal Justice Initiative, 
the organization behind a plan to build a memorial to lynching victims and a museum that explores African-American history. He was interviewed by Drew Gilpin-Faust. She's president of Harvard University. Their conversation took place at the Aspen Ideas Festival in Aspen, Colorado in June 2016. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Follow the Aspen Ideas Festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of our public programs. Thanks for joining me.